Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. In the feature essay of the Australian literary journal Mianjin's Spring 2018 edition, author and passionate animal advocate Jane Rawson, who I should disclose is a friend of mine, referred to a research paper that argues that companies and advertisers using images and other likenesses of endangered animals should pay for efforts towards their conservation. In her essay, The Invisible Extinctions, Jane suggested that this could be a way to stop what seems like the inexorable demise of non-human animals. To explore the ideas in the paper, The Paradoxical Extinction of the Most Charismatic Animals, I interviewed David Watson, professor in ecology at the Institute for Land, Water and Society and School of Environmental Sciences at Charleston University, and Dr. Stephen Downs, lecturer in marketing, communication and brand strategy at RMIT. The paper starts by saying that there's this impression that conservation efforts uh, disproportionately benefit what are known as charismatic animals. David, can you start by explaining what charismatic animals are? Sure. I guess first we need to talk about charismatic to whom, and it's not to necessarily to biologists or conservation scientists. It's to the wider community, it's to people uh, collectively. And the way this has been evaluated before, it's basically animals that most people can relate to. And so that means animals with discernible faces, with legs, with eyes. So not worms, not weird wriggly things. Generally speaking, mammals and generally speaking, large mammals from distant lands that aren't going to necessarily eat us and that we don't eat. So it's quite a quite a discrete subset of characteristics there. But these are the sorts of creatures that you see widely used. And at World Wildlife Fund, the panda is one of the, the iconic logos out there in the conservation space. And the panda bear is right up there as one of the real charismatic creatures to most people. But what are the animals identified in the paper? Right, they go through them. So there's 10 and it's fascinating to look at them. So they're, they're all mammals and they're pretty much all old world, sort of African, Asian, Europeans. And they're, they're Disney animals. So elephants, lions, tigers, giraffes, leopard, pandas, cheetah, polar bear, wolf and gorilla. These are animals that most people would easily recognise, children would easily recognise and put a name to and none of them from the New World really, none of them from Australasia, all of them, you know, people have had a very long association with them. Before I read this paper I I figured I wonder if there's any non-mammals in there and they're all mammals, which is telling. That's how most people relate. It's sort of like us. We can can identify with it. Stephen, from from your background in, in marketing and advertising, why do you think these particular animals are charismatic? Well, I think 
we grow up with them. We grow up with them in stories, in fables, in nursery rhymes, in songs, uh, in cartoons, for example. They are the go-to animals, I think, for the reasons that Dave has said, that they have faces, they have legs, they have arms, etc. They can be easily animated uh, in a way that's, you know, anthropomorphic, if you like. We grow up with them, and they're also imbued with certain attributes and personalities and this seems to be somewhat cross-cultural i think yes in in the west we can say that uh, you know lions are regal and uh, that sort of thing but we also see the use of lions in in uh, asian cultures in others as well to denote certain attributes values and, and personalities sometimes advertisers want to borrow some of those attributes or associations and link them to their brand or to the specific benefit benefit that they're trying to communicate about their brand, about their product. Sometimes they want to borrow the the personality of the animal, the friendly, cuddly, attention getting, oh, how cute, you know, kind of kind of thing. So, um, you know, I have a family member who just loves the meerkats in the uh, insurance ads. Uh, they're not one of this top 10 charismatic animals, but they're certainly charismatic as far as many people are concerned. They're probably not far off the list. And that sort of cuteness, attention getting, getting factor and and that you know ability to kind of convey some sort of human personality traits or some sort of uh, human emotions human in inverted commas emotions is certainly a reason why advertisers and marketers would use them David what are Australian charismatic animals I mean none of the ones on the list appear in Australia I think the koala is in my mind the absolute champion it's right right up there and it's again for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing for these charismatic animals more broadly they're cute they're identifiable. They've got a face. They don't pose a you know a threat to you as well. I think so. Many people associate koalas with Australia, but you go outside of Australia. I think kangaroos are much more highly regarded outside of this land than by the average Aussie. And so I think it, again, it depends on who you're talking to. But I think to the average Aussie, the native animal that they would most identify with, koala would be up there. Dolphins probably as well. They're pretty big. And I think none of the the species that were discussed in this paper were were from the water. They were all land land-based animals again which is instructive that's that's the world that we inhabit that's how we get around but again talk to biologists you'll, and you'll get a different story talk to people who make a living from studying animals and koalas are generally looked down upon <laughs> so for all sorts of silly reasons i think but yeah koalas are really charismatic and other distinctively australian things platypus echidna are up there but nothing i think holds a candle to to the koala bear but the public the paper says ignores the plight of charismatic animals can you talk a little bit about that yeah i guess that gets to the real essence of the paper and that's that this disconnect between the wider community's perception and the unfortunate reality. And we see these creatures depicted, cartoons, in, in popular culture daily. And yes, they're all in free fall. There's some graphs in this paper that make for very sobering reading. And there's a point that I think that makes this very well. In, there's been some very solid projections that in around 200 years, the largest animal in Africa will be the cow. So just take a moment to think about that. All those big, gnarly, special beasties, many of which are in their list, the elephant, the giraffe, and we can add to that, you know, hippos, and rhinos, and all these gorgeous, special, ancient things. The end is nigh for them. And I think a lot of ecologists are desperately worried about what this means for the way systems work. The, the point of this paper is that we, we, we need to be mindful that just because it's in the public eye, just because it's a familiar animal that many people identify with and think of in special positive terms, number one, that doesn't mean that they're going gangbusters. And I guess really one of the take-home messages here is that doesn't translate to resources being uh, devoted to, to securing these species. Just because
because we apparently love them and want to see them and go to movies about them, that doesn't translate to dipping into our pockets and giving an extra $5 to make sure lions, tigers, bears, elephants are going to be around for millennia to come. The paper says that there's an impression that conservation efforts disproportionately benefit these charismatic animals, and this is obviously not the case. Mm. Stephen, why do you think that there's this biased perception? Well, the paper suggests, uh, and I think this is right, and, and I think it bears out things we've seen in other ways, that we're surrounded by these virtual, this virtual menagerie, if you like, these virtual f- herds or flocks or whatever of animals all the time through popular culture, through advertising, marketing, media, cartoons, at, at movies, etc. And that that means we have this sense of false familiarity about them, that they are parts of our lives. And hence, uh, when asked, well, do we think they're at threat? It's very hard for us to gauge just how many of them there are, what levels of them there are, let alone, you know, whether specific um, subspecies or other things might be more at risk. Um, You know, we we just generically assume that they're out there because they're around us all the time. On the way to do this interview, I saw a panda on the back of a a bicycle courier delivering Chinese takeaways, you know, (laughs) or a a lion on the uh, logo of a car, you know, so these things are just such a part of the fabric of everyday life and and perception that it's very hard for us to think of them in their uh, environmental context, in their ecological context, in their habitat. What is the conservation picture for charismatic animals, the ones in the list? And I'd like you to talk about the Australian ones after that. Right. So it's, it's grim. Most of these animals are large and a lot of them are predatory. So, you know, wolf, cheetah, leopard, lion, tiger, they're all large predators, cats and dogs. And then there's a big primate in there, gorilla, and then large ungulates, so giraffe and then uh, elephants. That, that rounds it out. These broader groups are in real trouble and those particular species are in free fall. So some of the steepest declines we're seeing in large mammals are in that group. So giraffes are in free fall. Their numbers precipitously dropped in the last 30 years. And we're seeing this in Australia as well. So things that might surprise people like platypus. Everyone knows platypus. Of course, they're great. They're across Australia, aren't they? Well, no, they're just sort of in southeastern Australia. And even there, they're in real trouble. So once you cross the, the divide, once you get inland of the of the dividing range, there hasn't been platypus sightings for about 30 years. Most river systems where they used to occur commonly, they're not there anymore. They're not extinct. They're still around. But they're a shadow of what they used to be in living memory. It's not like, oh, you've got to look to old records to get a, a sense of this. This is on our watch. This is in real time. And I think we need to be careful the way we talk about some of these things because I think with anthropogenic climate change and the climate catastrophe we're seeing nightly on the news, I think the wider community is getting numb and they're like, bloody hell, this it's all bad. The Arctic is burning. Greenland is melting. Really crazy stuff is happening on a daily basis, translating those really difficult global phenomena to meaningful on-ground local actions that an individual living in St Kilda can do that will make a difference. That's a stretch. That really is a stretch. Now, yes, there are genuine, real things that individuals can do. But I think as communicators, as a, as a biologist, I'm really conscious of not dwelling overly on the bad news, on the negativity, on the global declines. It is all bad. It is all grim. There are rays of light. There are upticks. There are good news stories. And I guess by including them in the mix and by not always getting down in the dumps about stuff, we can get some positivity out there. We can give people some 
tangible good news to hang on to and sort of translate that to real things that they can do. But it's grim. And I guess this paper points to that. But I guess turning that around the other way and listening to Stephen talk about seeing the panda and, and the lion on the, on, the, on the way to the studio, people do care. We don't have bolts of lightning as our choice of symbol or whatever, or just some random shape. We love animals collectively as humans. We surround ourselves with them. We live in houses with them. We bring them into our houses. So I think there's ways that we can capitalise on people's innate love for animals. And I think it's great to have a marketer thinking about this sort of stuff because that's, to me, where we need to be is having discussions with people who are very clever at putting things in front of people, at using symbols to start to affect behavioural change because we need that stuff and we need it now. Stephen, how do we start? How do we start? Well, I I think there's a, a lot of opportunity to pick up on what David said to bring marketers, corporations, commercial entities and large not-for-profit enterprises together with conservation organisations and produce a win-win here. We see one of the big movements in management science, if you like, in management practice over the last 15, 20 years has been corporate social responsibility, triple bottom line, etc. Don't just produce results for your shareholders, but also do something for the society and the, and the environment. And yet I don't see that at the moment translating, and yet, yet I think it could, to um, corporations actually partnering with conservation organisations in effect sponsoring threatened species. If we're using a logo that features one of these charismatic animals or any any animal, for example, are we doing our bit to contribute to the longevity, to the, endurab- the durability of that animal uh, actually on Earth? I mean, that's not to say that from a marketing perspective, it's going to the fact that the animal continues to exist, you, you would think should support marketing efforts using a logo or using a, a brand presenter that's a, that's a charismatic animal. And yet, of course, there are certain brands that use extinct animals, dinosaurs and dodos and things. So, the, you know, that that's a bit of a caveat. On the other hand, I mean, I think there's an enormous opportunity for corporations to be seen to be doing the right thing as long as they're not greenwashing some other environmentally unacceptable uh, practice by doing something superficial, by, by linking themselves here. And I think I've seen a lot of lost opportunities recently where I would have thought that perhaps there seems to, there needs to be some kind of forum or, or clearinghouse or something for bringing conservation causes and organisations together with brands to try and facilitate this. For example, Qantas recently had a crowdsourcing competition to name its new fleet of Boeing 787s and instead of saying, hey, could we name these after you know threatened Australian species? How more iconically Australian could you be? We've got the kangaroo on the tail. Let's, let's give prominence to some other species. The crowd came up with the tired old Waltzing Matilda, Great Southern Land, Great Barrier Reef and oh. Skippy as as among the top five names. Uh, Quokka. Quokka was the only terrestrial mammal that got a mention in the list. Instead, you know, these things fly. Why not some birds or some... Uh, and that, that's a name next to the front door of the aircraft as you're boarding. Put an information card in the seat pocket. Have a short video clip on the in, in-flight uh, video. These, these are massive lost opportunities that I see you know we could be taking up and corporations could be taking up and it would be good for them obviously for their their public reputation and and perceptions of their corporate citizenship you're listening to an interview I recorded late last week with Professor David Watson and Dr Stephen Downs about research suggesting companies using non-human animal images for branding or advertising contribute towards their conservation 
Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're listening to Communication Mixdown on Radio 3CR, 855 AM. The current use of animals by corporations seems to be actually doing harm. The paper argues that there's such a massive virtual population of animals that we have this impression that these animals are thriving. One of the saddest lines in the paper for me was when they got people to track the number of virtual animals they encountered. For example, the volunteers show an average of 4.4 lions a day, meaning that people see on average two or three times as many virtual lions in a single year than the total population of wild lions currently living in the whole of West Africa. This reinforces the idea that the ubiquity of virtual species may be hindering the perception of the rarity of these animals. David, it's one thing to try to be hopeful, but in the face of that, where is the hope? This is something that many of us struggle with, and it's personal stuff. You talk to 10 people, you get 10 different responses. I know some colleagues, quite overtly, in the conservation science space, just now no longer work on direct current conservation issues because it's too hard. It's just it's too hard on them personally. Just like some ER-type doctors have a stint at the front line, and then it just takes too much of a toll on them personally so they pull back and work in another allied medical field. And so for me personally, I just look beyond human. I'm no longer concerned uh, about the Anthropocene because I'm already thinking about the post-Anthropocene. And what motivates me, why I get up in the morning, is to look after the planet for long enough for the next big thing, for whatever it is that replaces humans. And I do my darndest to maximise raw material for evolution to work on for whatever comes next. I think there's a lot of literature out there on the Anthropocene. Many people are concerned about what we're doing to the place. If you just blur your eyes a bit, and think about things from geological time. We are a blip. We're quite an emphatic blip, but life is tenacious. Life will persist. Glorious things are down the road once humans finish what they're already doing and that's uh, getting rid of themselves. If you take a slightly longer-term view, it's actually quite hopeful, but I think it's just unfortunate to be an intelligent, aware person at this time because it's all pretty grim. But if you can look past that, life on Earth has a very long, very prosperous future ahead of it. Wow, I don't know if that's comforting, but I can understand why you... It helps me. It helps me. But as I said this is personal stuff and so I'm not saying that you know that's the cordial that you all need to sip that's just what I tell myself. The paper suggests that maybe companies should pay for using images of animals you know creating these virtual populations that give the wrong impression. Stephen how does it work when companies have to pay for an image? Well the basic problem is that you can if you're a celebrity uh, someone in the public eye or if you create a work of art your work that image can't be used for marketing purposes that's on paying a license and permission. But the appearance of an animal, you know, the animal itself is not protected and can't be protected in that way. Only a specific photograph or a specific logo or a specific piece of art featuring an animal can can in fact be subject to copyright and potentially trademark protected under the intellectual property regimes around the, around the world. So under those circumstances, you know, yes, you can pay a license fee to the person who created that, but it's open to anyone to go out and take a photo 
of a, an elephant, if they can manage to get to where the elephants are, uh, the decreasing numbers of elephants are, and then charge someone to use that in their advertising. So, in fact, the elephant doesn't get anything out of it and eat, unless you pay something to the owner of the game preserve or the zoo, or it's free. There's no regulatory uh, regime that can return money to uh, to animals in that sense. You know, and there's no mechanisms in law to recognise nature rights or animal rights. You know, there's, there's intellectual property rights if you create something as a human. But we've never accorded animals, habitats, plants, any rights in that sense. I'd just like to pick up on a point that Steve made earlier, and that is need to work out mechanisms for this sort of stuff and, and he pointed out that there isn't really a clearinghouse for getting together in one unified space to how would this actually occur and I think that's at the heart of many disconnect with the conservation and environmental movement. There is no entity, there is no one umbrella, sort of a consortium that speaks to the wider community about these sorts of issues with one voice. And I think, you know, you look at the big bad miners, there's the Minerals Council of Australia. There's many, many different groups that have got together and have worked out, look, we need to organise our communications here. We need to speak with one voice and sure, there'll be disagreement and there'll be nuance, there'll be compromise, but let's do all of that behind closed doors and let's speak with one unified voice. Australia is crying out for that level of unity, that level of coordination in the environmental space. A few clever people have pointed this out and have been saying it for a while. I can't really see a way to organise this space to achieve that worthy aim. I think it's a very divided area because it's competitive. A lot of these organisations are wanting attention, are wanting airtime, are wanting people to care. So it's all for worthy aims. But I think we really need to look at coordinating and consolidating a lot of communications in this space. And then this sort of thing about working out mechanisms to get funding back to the organisms being depicted, that's just one of a hundred things that would be way easier to do once you get that sort of a superstructure in place. I think a lot of consumers assume that the government is looking after the broader picture in terms of conservation and the environment. They assume that the government we elect is the custodian of Australia's natural heritage in terms of animals, environments, habitats, etc., plants. And that's not the case. Indeed, each of these conservation causes and to some extent each of the threatened species species that we have is competing for its share of the years of government and of dollars. And we've seen in the last couple of years, conservationists themselves, academics, are crowdfunding interventions for critically endangered species. So to add to that, yes, there's no central body, there's no central clearinghouse, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of pressure from outside the conservation and ecology community on government or anyone else to put that together because they assume government must be doing this, guys. Isn't there a Department of Environment? I mean, surely they're looking after Constantly getting no- news about the failings of the Department of well, well, we are, but I'm not sure whether that's getting through mm. more, more generally. Um, how does it work? How could it work? Well, I think David's pointed to some of these overall industry bodies, industry councils, etc., lobby groups, pressure groups, whatever you like. I mean, they do come together when they feel that their own interests in the case of mining, in the case of uh, petroleum, in the case of some of these other industries, when they feel that that's under threat from external forces, that their um, their longevity is threatened, they will come together despite having somewhat different agendas, but various groups will band together. That hasn't happened, and I'm not you know, an insider in the conservation ecology community, so I'm not sure why that hasn't happened before, but it's clearly needed some sort of umbrella body in the way that David's talked about. 
David, are there international models that we could try to emulate? Not really. There's a few sort of umbrella groups that do their thing. And, you know, we've mentioned a few of them already. So World Wildlife Fund is one of the big ones. The Nature Conservancy is another one. They come close, but I guess it's a difficult thing to do at an international scale because what resonates, I think, with most people is local things that relate to them, where they live, where they work, where their support networks are. And a global organisation would really struggle to connect in that way meaningfully without it just sounding tokenistic. I think rather than looking outside our shores, I think this is something that if we care about as Australians, really thinking through how would this happen would achieve so much because it's a point well made by Stephen though I think a lot of people just assume that surely that's what government's for, that's what the environment uh, environment Australia, that's what you'd call it if this sort of group, that's the logical name for it and that entity exists so surely that's what happens and it's simply not the case government doesn't get it, government won't get it and the, the kind of time frames we're talking about are beyond government, they can't think beyond a couple of years and we necessarily need to be thinking much much longer term than that so mechanisms of how this would work I'm not the best person to talk to about this sort of stuff but I think it's getting the idea out there and getting getting clever people thinking about it and yeah organizing it may happen what comes to mind when you when you both talk about this is clearly like small community based groups mm. need to sort of start creating network you could do regions and then states and but then again how do they get the big foundations and things to join them we live in such a competition driven society how do you cultivate even collaboration across such a space well i I'm actually quite excited from a personal perspective because I see such opportunities, especially for bringing people with, I suppose, a broader view of marketing, of corporate responsibility, of corporate activity together with people in conservation and ecology to try and work out how we can uh, you know, benefit each other, how each of those bodies can benefit each other in the short term and, and ideally in the long term. You know, we talk about corporate social responsibility, we talk about uh, cause related marketing, etc. in the marketing and advertising industries. I'd like to see it, you know, not just being tokenistic, but there being some real synergies uh, aimed for and achieved between uh, the commercial world and the world of marketing communication and uh, people in conservation and ecology. Yeah, look, I'd echo that. And I think it's very clear that the big industries, big corporations are thinking well beyond the realm of our government. So let's just ignore the government of the day. They come, they go, what they do doesn't really matter to some extent. Let's get together. I think the environmental sector and these bigger industries that want to be seen to be good people, and a lot of them are doing really well things and want to get some credit for it. And so I think the synergy there is tremendous. And I think Australia's got marketers' dream. I mean, a quokka, you couldn't invent a cuter animal. I mean, if you paid a team of very, very clever people to sit down and design something, they wouldn't get close to that. So the raw material we've got to work with is tremendous. Yeah, this paper has certainly got me thinking, and I think Stephen and I are going to be uh, chatting further about this sort of stuff, because I think the timing is right, and I think a lot of industries are on the wane, uh, and a lot of other in- industries are looking to step up. And so using some of these distinctive beasties, some of these charismatic animals, for branding. There are a whole lot of win-wins there and it wouldn't take too much to find them. I'd just like to say the revolution began here. That was Professor of Ecology David Watson and lecturer in Marketing, Communication and Brand Strategy Stephen Downs speaking, discussing ways in which we can stem the tide of animal extinction. Dr. Frank Couchamp, the lead author of the paper, was travelling when we recorded this show, but he told me many people have contacted him since the research was published um, wanting wanting to see whether they, something can be done to formalise the proposal to set up a copyright fee on using endangered animals for marketing purposes to help their conservation. He highlighted the establishment of an initiative called the Lion Share in the UK under the patronage of say, Sir David Attenborough. Advertisers using endangered animal photos uh, pledged to give a small percentage of the benefits to conservation. Dr. Cushomp said he hopes 
it helps set an example for other countries too. That's all for communication mixed down for another week. Um, as always, we'll have the podcast of this show available on the 3CR website later this week. We're back next Monday at the same time. Please join us then. Uh, let's go out with a, a hopeful uh, song, Coco Rosie's Noah's Ark. <laughs> 